Hi, everybody. Uh, so rather than taking a week off uh, because we have reading week in Canada where I'm a professor, I booked back to back to back to back talks. But when I have guests like these two lovely ladies, I think I'm doing the right thing. So let me introduce them to you. We've got Bethany Mandel and Carol Markowitz. Carol is her second time appearance. Um, so Bethany is a columnist for Fox News and a contributing writer for Deseret. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. News editor of the children's book series, Heroes of Liberty, named one of the 50 Jews everyone should follow on Twitter in 2019 by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Now, from a self-absorbed perspective, <laughs> was God sad on that list at number one? And was Carol on that list? I wasn't. No, you weren't. No, was no. I. It, it helps when you're friends with the person who's compiling that list just for future reference. Okay, well, if I wasn't on the 2019, please correct that egregious error. Yeah. All right. So then uh, you've written for the New York Times, New York Post, Washington Post, Washington Examiner, Newsweek, and others. Carol yeah, yeah. was my guest on the Sad Truth 1455 episode, which was around September. Mm -hmm. Weekly columnist at the New York Post and Fox News has written for USA Today, Wall Street Journal, Newsweek, Time, National Review, among other outlets. And you are both the co-author of a forthcoming book to be out next week, March 7th, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation. Did I cover all the key points? Are, are we good? The only thing is that the interview comes out the 7th. So. Oh, that's the, the interview comes out the 7th. <laughs> true, true. And the book comes out on the 7th. Yeah. No worries. Uh, very, very excited to speak to you both. Uh, why don't we start off with uh, the general theme of the book? I think one of the things that, uh, Carol, you you reminded me that we should probably discuss is that at the start of your, your book about children indoctrination, you do kind of a historical perspective of how other societies and other regimes have exactly applied the indoctrination template on children. Maybe we could start off there. Yeah. So I, I wrote that chapter. We switched back and forth uh, on the chapters. And uh, I drew from my own background, being born in the Soviet Union and hearing the stories growing up about how you couldn't say certain things and you couldn't, um, you not even you couldn't say certain things, you had to say the right things strongly enough. If you didn't say them strongly enough, you could really get into trouble. And throughout COVID, we watched this happen in the Western world where there was the correct opinion, and that was the only opinion allowed. And so, for example, on the lab leak, which we now know, you know, and we've known for a while that it would, the COVID came from a lab, but that was an opinion that you could be banned from social media for saying, and you could be, you know, you'd be called a kook and you might be fired from your job. And people have been fired for far less during the COVID years. Uh, so, we watched it come to our shores in a really scary way. Um, a few days ago, I was in the car with my kids. I have a daughter who's 13 and a sons who are 10 and seven. And my daughter had just gotten her nails done. And my seven-year-old sort of just playfully said, you know, can I get my nails done? And I said, no, in our house, we have really, we have really strict gender stereotypes that we follow. And my 13-year-old daughter said to him, to my seven-year-old, don't say that outside the house. She just didn't want him to repeat that at school and get in trouble or whatever. And she doesn't know, I mean, she does know, but being a conservative writer means that I don't care about um, being canceled. I don't care about being targeted because I'm used to it and because there's only so much that these people could do to me. Uh, but it was concerning to me that my daughter had gotten a lesson that you can't say certain things outside of our home. And 
uh, parents are seeing that throughout the country in so many different ways. What was the original, again, either of you can take the questions or one can build on the, the response of the other. What was sort of the impetus that led you each, maybe independently of one another, and then to come together to say, I need to weigh in on this. I think there's a book to be written here about how children are being indoctrinated. What, what Was there such a sort of episodic moment? Yeah, so we sort of knew we wanted to write a book together. We knew that society at large was sort of trying to interfere with our parenting choices. And the original book title that we were thinking of was Get Your Village Off My Children. And we decided to open a Google Doc and just dump stories in of like, this happened, this happened, this happened. Uh, Think pieces that were sort of more general. And we realized after a week, like the question went from, is there enough here for a book to how can we possibly write a book and how can we wrap our brains around this? Because there was just so much material. And what was really frustrating, of course, is, you know, after you finish the book, you're like, oh, I wish that I had read, yeah. I wish I had said this, I wish I'd put this in. And I like have to stop reading it now because I'm just so frustrated. Like there's one sentence that is haunting me until the day I die. I wish I had put it in there. Um, but there's, you know, there's so much out there um, that are unfortunate examples of how this sort of worldview is trying to to take hold of an entire generation of children that are not their own they're they're not the ones having kids we are and they've decided that it is their sacred duty to make sure that they are being raised uh with a woke worldview that does not come from their parents by they and we you mean that uh on average the fertility rate of progressives is uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's probably below the replacement rate of 2.17. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah. It's in the tank. If if you just if you superimpose sort of fertility rates by state and then by voting patterns, you can see a very clear pattern of um, the coastal states, the the states that vote left, generally speaking, have much lower fertility rates than than those of more conservative states. And uh, the same with religious uh, affiliation as well. If you look at religious affiliation and birth rate versus non-religious affiliation, um, and those ten are generally tend to sort of trend one way or the other um, ideologically. So I'm going to uh, propose a speculative hypothesis here to get to kind of your, because I want to link something that I discussed in my forthcoming book about the difference in happiness scores between conservatives and liberals, and then link yeah. it to, to this fertility uh, finding that you that you just spoke of. So in the book, I, I demonstrate that, you know, while the results are not absolutely unequivocal, there certainly does seem to be a happiness effect such that yeah. conservatives score higher on happiness, well-being, and so on, than than liberals, and uh, and I don't think the literature has has nailed down what might be the you know the the explanation for that finding, uh, and so what I proposed, and and then I can we can link it to the fertility finding. So I argued that you know when you're a progressive, utopia is around the corner, right? We, mm-hmm. we need to dismantle the world as it is today. It sucks. And then if only we can implement the racism, the true socialism, the true pure, you know, utopia, then everybody would be happy. So when I wake up as a progressive, I'm by definition existentially unhappy with the status quo because happiness is around the corner. Whereas if I'm a conservative, there by def- the, the word means there are certain values and principles worth conserving. So I wake up existentially pleased with the status quo. And I argue that that might be a, a key defining factor that, that explains the difference between conservatives and liberals. 
And then, of course, if if that holds, then it makes sense that if I am a unhappy progressive, I don't want to bring people into the miserable world that we live in because we haven't reached nirvana yet. That, does the whole story make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I I totally agree. The um, you know, the exercise of having children is an expression of hope in the future. I would never bring children into this world that I thought were was doomed for, you know, fire and brimstone with whatever sort of thing is going on that week that, you know, will end society, whether it be COVID or climate change, whatever. Um, but I'm I'm not particularly worried about any of those things. I have hope in the future. And a lot of that is because I'm religious. <laughs> right. So, you know, when you believe in God, you trust that things will all just work out. Um, but yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think that all of those things are intertwined. And, you know, if if I'm going to choose a worldview, I'm just glad to have the one that makes me happy. <laughs> now, uh, so not so stressed don't, out. You don't you don't buy uh, occasional cortex's uh, position that we have twelve minutes or twelve days or whatever the number is left to live. I mean, I, what kind of monster must you be to have produced? I think six kids, right? You, one of you has three, one has six. Yeah. You I guys must be incredibly selfish pigs to produce children that are not going to see their reproductive window instantiated. We have what twelve years left, no? Right. So I, it's funny because I tell my own kids when they, you know, they get fed this idea in school, uh, especially when we lived in Brooklyn, that the world's going to end very soon and and you should be out there protesting. Um, but I, I say to them, like, look at the people saying this and then look at their lives. Al Gore's house is like 12 times or something, the, the footprint of the average American house. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio, big environmental activist is like frequently taking, you know, his yacht out by himself. Um, they fly private. They don't live like if I were genuinely afraid of the climate destroying us all, I would live, I would change my life. I would live very differently. And yet they say that they're very concerned about this, but they don't act very concerned. And that's a big tell for me. I'm a poker player. That's a tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also they're not building bunkers. I would not be having the waterfront property that all these people have. <laughs> Indeed. I'd be, bound, I'd be building down. Uh, the, the, the sole question that will be targeted specifically to one of you two. So I know that uh, Bethany, you, you're, you're, all of your kids are homeschooled. Yeah. Uh, was this something that came out of the, you know, the realization that they were being indoctrinated or were, would you have homeschooled them even if none of the parasitic ideas were floating around? So it's a good question. And I'm. it's a very big life choice. And it, I can't sort of peg it to one sort of thing. Um, we're Jewish. And so the traditional model for people in our community, literally 99.9% .9 of people send to Jewish day schools. And so, you know, we don't have an extra 30k per kid per year. Um, and we wanted to have more than two kids. And so it was a choice of limit our family size or uh, make other educational decisions. Um, and then, you know, there are people who send public and I did not want to do that uh, because of the indoctrination. We lived uh, and we still live. We moved from one deep blue area to another where I'm not smart like Carol picked up my family and moved <laughs> to a red state. Um, we, uh, we moved from deep blue New Jersey to deep blue Maryland. And I did not want my kids in those schools. Um, and things were not even crazy back when we made the decision to homeschool. They were still sort of like ramping up a little bit uh, with the fear mongering with climate change. And the, the gender stuff wasn't really on the radar of young children yet. And that's sort of the heart of why we wrote this book was that, 
you know, there's so much written about sort of the wokeization of uh, corporate America, of colleges, um, but there's very little in the way of children and people weren't paying attention to what, um, how children were being targeted. And um, it's just, they've just pressed the gas. And, you know, it was sort of a weird decision to, to start with, we didn't start with COVID, but we definitely have a lot of COVID in here. And for us, it was just like, this is when they pressed on the gas. Right. Um, and they decided like, you know, this was, this was a test experiment. Let's see how much they'll swallow and, and how quiet they'll be when the emperor has no clothes and everyone dutifully put on those cloth masks outside for a year and a half. So let's do it up. Uh, one more follow-up to Bethany, then I'll open it up again to, to either of you. Do you worry as someone who's made the decision to homeschool your kids that, okay, notwithstanding all the, the indoctrination, that there are some developmental markers that they miss, they might miss out on by virtue of them being homeschooled, right? There is value. In, I mean, I know that, for example, I have a 14-year-old and 11-year-old, and just developmentally, as would be exactly, I mean, you could set your, your, your watch to it. There comes a period where they're a lot more interested in speaking to their peers than they are in speaking to you. I go from hero, not quite hopefully to a zero, but I'm I'm clearly not as you know vivid in, in the day-to-day moments of my daughter's life, who's now 14. So do you worry that it, in some capacity, they're losing out by not being able to experience some of that social reality? Yeah. So I wish that I could bring up the 14-year-old homeschool girl that's currently babysitting my other children in my basement so she could take this question. <laughs> um, she, it, I'll, I'll just, I'll talk about her because I don't have a 14-year-old yet. Um, she is brilliant and responsible and the most capable 14-year-old you'll ever meet in your life. And a lot of it is by virtue of she's around people of all different ages, of from adults with her parents uh, on a much more sort of closer ratio um, to her little siblings, to my children. And she has a sense of responsibility and a sense of um, maturity that children of her age in school don't have. When you think about the school environment, it's super artificial. We've decided that socialization is this very narrow thing where you're sitting in a classroom for eight hours a day, which sometimes you're allowed to talk. Most of the time you're not allowed to talk um, to people born within a calendar year of you. And that's, I mean, that's not reality. Most of my friends, I would say one of them are within a year of me. Everyone else is five, 10 years older on either side. Um, and, you know, this homeschool girl in my basement, she has tons of social opportunities. And so do my children. Um, I'm literally going to leave this call and run out the door to bring my kids to a Taekwondo class. They do art classes, they do music classes. Um, you know, there's so many social opportunities for homeschooled kids. Um, but I'll also sort of turn, one of my favorite things is the lack of socialization. I don't think it's a lack, it's just a different kind of socialization, but the lack of traditional socialization in schools is a feature and not a bug of homeschooling. I don't want my children necessarily to form relationships with every kid who was born within a calendar year of them in our neighborhood. There's some kids I don't really like, and I can say that. Um, and so I'm able to little be a little bit more picky and choosy with my kids' friends because I have a lot more, con I don't want to say control because it makes me seem like very controlly, but uh, I have a lot more input Right. on my kids' socialization. Um, and, you know, that peer influence is really powerful. And there is a developmental shift at around that age where they are 
sort of considering the thoughts of their peers more than their parents. And you want to make sure that those are good peers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of struggling and navigating through all these. How old are your children, Carol, again? Can you remind us? So 13, 10, and 7. The 13 is a boy or a girl? girl. A girl? Yeah. So are yeah. you are you are you getting the the eye rolls and the the rest of it? <laughs> no, she's actually she's really earnest and sweet. Um, she's she's a little sarcastic, but um, I wonder where she gets that from. That's <laughs> that's always been the case. Um, she she's also very responsible. So I you know I I, I get that uh, the homeschool model um, maybe produces kids who are more responsible, but I happen to have maybe lucked out, and my daughter is my son's less. Um, I'm not sure, like, you know, when I sent my middle son to sleepaway camp, I'm not sure he like brushed his hair or anything, like even one time. Um, but yeah, kids are all different. And so far, um, I also have, uh, you know, I feel like a pretty good control over her social group and over my son's social group as well. Um, and she trusts my opinion. I mean, that might not always be the case, but when I'm like mm, that person, um, she's like, yeah, you're right. That person's not. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> great. That's wonderful. So uh, far, okay. so far. <laughs> so in, in, in setting up now some of the, the discussion of the, the meat of the book, Stolen Youth, Get Out and Pick It Up, March 7, it will be released. Uh, I wanted to uh, share with you something that I discuss in my uh, in one of my lectures in my consumer behavior course, where I'm discussing with the students. You know, is it ever ethical to advertise to children? But in, and in this case, by advertisement, we mean cereals and you know bubble gum and so on. Uh, and, and if it is uh, okay to advertise to children. What should be the framework under which we are able to decide at what age it would be appropriate to do so? And and uh, the answer, you know, roughly speaking, is it really comes again from this idea that there are certain developmental stages that children hit uh, in a very predictable way, such that you should never be able to advertise to children when if they haven't yet reached the cognitive developmental stage to know that the advertisement is a persuasive attempt, right? So because if I know that there is that persuasive attempt, then I can build up my cognitive and emotional defenses against it. I could start thinking about a counter argument for why I shouldn't buy Mazda and it and Mazda, whatever it is. But I've got the, the if you like, not an inoculation, but as I said, a, a, a possibility to counter argue your persuasive intent. And so People place that at different stages, but for for the sake of our discussion, let's say it's you know nine. You know, some countries it's ten, some countries it's thirteen, whatever. But there is a clear recognition that it is unethical, if not immoral, to target children when you're doing something as innocuous as trying to sell them chewing gum. So, so put that in context, and now we have folks who are trying to enter our children's brains to teach them about you know, transgender issues and sexual issues at a much younger age than nine and 10. So it's a lot deeper issue than selling chewing gum mm -hmm. or drag queens twerking during reading hour. So how could the progressives reconcile those two different realities? The one that I first share regarding consumer psychology and the indoctrination. Is there any logic to what they're doing? Uh, so I, I would say it's funny. So I have three kids. My middle son is so susceptible to advertising. He is. He just today sent me that Lucky Charms has a uh, St. Patrick's Day cereal, and can I buy it? And I'm like, no, I cannot. Um, so and first of all, like I think kids will will 
get targeted via advertising, um, no matter what I think out in the world, they will be targeted by images. And he is so just, this is going to be amazing. And then he gets it and it's like, mm, this is not that great. Um, and, but it's funny because my other two really aren't, and especially my daughter during COVID, she um, recognized that the commercials were like, we're all in this together, buy our car. And she started mocking it. She, she sort of saw that it was like, you know, we believe buy our product. Um, and she, she started just making fun of it. So first of all, I would say that that's a way to inoculate your children as much as possible. Again, my middle son is kind of lost to this, but as much as possible, teach them how hilarious and, you know, the ridiculous these commercials actually are and how the product will never, you know, be this amazing thing that they want. Um, and the same thing goes for the information provided to you at school. You have to look at it or anywhere in the world. You have to look at it critically and say, you know, is this an opinion? Is this a fact? Do I believe this? Do I not? Um, do I speak up against this or do I does, does this not matter to me? Um, and that sort of lays the foundation for these kids as they head to adulthood. Uh, resiliency is a chapter in our book, and that's a really important part of raising your children. So you can't buy them the lucky charms every time, and you can't just let them have um, you know, unfettered access to all kinds of things on the internet. And you can't let people influence your kids without your say-so. Right. What, what bothers me, uh, and then you can respond if you like, Bethany, but what bothers me about a lot of these you know, progressive positions is just how internally inconsistent they are just from a, from a, from a logic axiomatic perspective, right? So for example, uh, you, you can't, you know, if you're 17 years old, 364 days old, so meaning that in one day you'll be an adult and you, you, you put out a hit, a premeditated hit on your parents to pick up the insurance well, the progressives will be the first to jump and say, hey, but this is just a child. Their prefrontal cortex have not yet developed. They only develop right. when they're 25. So we can't punish this person who put out a hit on their parents to gain the money because they're one day short of being an adult. They're a child. But mm -hmm. that's from this side of the mouth. From this side of the mouth, oh, they're three years old and they've just declared that they are transgender. You have to believe. So from this side, they're too young at 17, 364. From this side, they're three. That's the kind of stuff that pisses me off. As, as someone who studied, you know, psychology of decision-making and rational choice, a lot of these progressive tenets are not internally consistent. And any of you can take it. Yeah, so that's funny. We had this exact situation in Maryland. Uh, they We had two bills that were up at the legislature at the exact same time. One of them was to lower the age of consent for immunizations. It's the COVID shot. That's why they did it. Um, and they wanted to lower it to 12, but in some circumstances, even as low as eight. Um, so that was one bill. Another bill said that uh, people under 18 were not the prefrontal cortex, the whole yada yada, that they weren't able to make rational decisions for carjackings. So they should not be held. They should not be <laughs> charged as adults when they're carjacking. One of those passed and one of those was pulled. The, the immunizations one was pulled and it was because so many people were like, pick one, pick one. <laughs> they're, they're either able to make decisions or they're not. And so they decided that they were going to say that children are not able to make decisions. Guess how many cars have been hijacked in my neighborhood in the last week? I... Turns out these things have consequences. Right. Wow. That's great. all teenagers. Beautiful. Yeah. 
And, uh, and you know, kids, they're, you're not allowed to smoke in America until you're 21, um, but you can get a sex change at, you know, 18 and some places even younger. Um, it, it is just so, and, and you can join the military, obviously, exactly. at 18, uh, but you can't gamble in Las Vegas until you're 21. And all of these things just, they don't make sense. Um, and they do seem to just be catered to whatever interest group is pushing the idea. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, and and by the way, the the effort to defeat that vaccination bill was only because they felt like they were put on the fence so much with that carjacking bill, basically, in the same legislative session. And so when enough people called them out on the inconsistency, that was when they pulled vaccination bill. So, well, this idea of putting them on the fence, I mean, is, is, is part of parental activism. So I'm going to now link some of the parental activism that has come out, say, from you know, against pushing against CRT or the transgender stuff and so on and link it. I don't think it's speculative, but I'm going to propose another theory and get your sense. So my feeling is that we're getting a lot of, I think, Astra Nomani, you know, do you know who that is? Of course, yeah. 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 So so Astra, I think she, she calls herself kind of part of the mama bears group, mama right? Bear. Right. Uh, which I like these animal metaphors. I use, you know, honey badger. Uh, now, Here's my evolutionary explanation to the extent that empirically there are more mothers that are coming out staunchly in defense of their children. And I don't know if that's true, but it it seems to certainly be anecdotally that there are more mothers. So even though, you know, the human species is referred to as a biparental species officially in biology, but both men and women invest heavily in their children. We're one of the few mammals that are officially classified as a biparental species. It is incontestable that women provide a much greater minimal obligatory parental investment than men do. I mean, certainly just from from a gametes perspective, there are about 400 ova that that women have from the onset of their menses to to, uh, menopause, whereas men can have 250 million spermatozoa in a single ejaculation. So one is scarce and cheap. One is, uh, uh, sorry, (laughs) scarce and costly. One is cheap and abundant. Hence, microeconomic theory, we Mm -hmm. we know how that would tilt. So- it makes perfect evolutionary sense to me that the 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 the, the sex the, the the parental sex that would be leading the defense of their children would be mothers. So, from you all of the anecdotes that you've picked up, you may not have formal data. Do you get the sense that many of the leaders of these parental revolt movements are led by mothers more so than fathers? Overall, yes. Um, There was the case in Loudoun County, and I'll let Bethany speak to it, where a father um, told the story of his daughter being raped by somebody in a, a, so there there are dads who are involved. But yes, I think what happened is moms, I mean, not not to over-exaggerate, but yes, moms are definitely more involved with children overall. Um, And I think they saw during the pandemic over their kid's shoulder, um, what was happening in schools. And that was the the moment for them where they realized they had to do something and they could no longer ignore it. And dads are, I just feel like more, uh, my husband, my husband went to um, a math night at my daughter's school last night and he said it was majority dads. And I, and you know, that, I don't know if that's just because like in our family, I was like, you're going to math night, like make all the relevant plans and you better do it because I don't have time. Um, or if the dads were just more interested in the math curriculum i you know i i feel like are are there differences between what women are interested in and what men are interested in there are and um 
I, like the security and safety of your children, I feel like is a it is a very mama bear sort of phenomenon where you you know want to keep them safe at all costs and you understand what that will entail. Beautiful. Uh, okay, I want next one is kind of a broad question. I don't know if again you might just have to speculate. So in in the in uh, my last book in the parasitic mind, I I identify a whole bunch of these bad ideas, which I call idea pathogens, but then I try to find some commonality. Is there something, there are different cancers, but yet all cancers have one thing in common. It's the unchecked division of cells. So at least that's common to all cancers. So I argued in the parasitic mind that what, what is common to all of these idea pathogens is that they all start with a noble cause, but then it, it, in the service of that original noble cause, you end up murdering truth and raping truth in that service, right? So equity feminism is a great idea. Men and women should be equal under the law. Most people would agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but but the radical feminists say, well, that's not enough. We now need to argue that men and women are indistinguishable and there are no biological-based differences because then that would allow us to eradicate the sexist status quo you know, more effectively. And mm -hmm. so in the service of that original noble goal, we end up murdering truth. So that was kind of the rubric under which I tried to argue for the commonality of these idea pathogens. So from your perspective, all the various strains of indoctrination, do you have, have you thought about what links CRT to transgenderism, to uh, climate anxiety? Is there such a common thread across all these indoctrination viruses? Uh, I, I'm take it. I, I think there absolutely is. It is leftist political ideology. Um, I would say that there's so much more specific leftism um, being pushed in all the different facets of our society, um, in corporations, in uh, licensing colleges. You know, in the teachers' colleges, they they get a very leftist education uh, that they then go and spread throughout the country. And it's funny, you know, you, you said that it kills, it kills truth. It also kills people. I mean, the ideologies have uh, that they, they think that, Oh, we're, we're doing, we're doing something good. I mean, communism, they thought that they were, you know, leading to equality. Equality is amazing, right? Who doesn't think that's great. And then it ended up killing, you know, 20 million plus people. Um, so bad ideas have consequences, like as you know, in the parasitic mind. Um, and it's, uh, a, you know, really important for us to stop those ideas from being targeted to kids specifically, because they are the most susceptible, like we discussed earlier, they're just easier to convince. And once you convince kids, it's much easier to convince their parents. Right. Uh, do you want to add something, uh, Bethany, before I ask the next, next, next yeah. question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it is um, this idea that we are inherently flawed in some way, that we are all inherently uh, sexist, um, racist, obviously, all very racist, um, but also that um, that we're so flawed that, that we might not even be the right, we might not have been born with the right brain, with the right gendered brain. And so if you're born as a biological female, maybe you're so messed up that you were born with a male brain instead. And, and I was just Googling Calvinism because I think that that's actually the basis of Calvinism that, you know, we're all born flawed. I, I might be wrong. That might be the wrong stream of Protestantism. That's not my forte, but I was trying to Google to make sure I didn't make a fool of myself. But I'm, from the Calvins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
But I mean, I think it's this idea that we are, and and sort of hearkening back to our earlier conversation that, you know, the misery, um, you know, I don't, don't believe that we are all inherently uh, flawed and need fixing. I think that God, you know, did a pretty good job on the first attempt with all of us and all of us were born the way that we should have been, even, you know, when we're born a little messed up, um, that messed up is the point. Um, but their sort of perspective is that everything and everyone needs fixing. And we're always churning and fighting towards this utopia. And, you know, if you have any understanding of communism, you know, from the very beginning to now, you understand that we have just never done communism right. Eventually we'll get there and everything will be great. And the millions and millions of people who have died in Ukraine and China and Cambodia, uh, Cuba, all of those deaths will be for the for the common good, but that the ends justify the means. And for them, when they're sort of indoctrinating an entire generation of children and the depression rates are through the roof, anxiety rates are through the roof, every everyone is miserable. That's okay because the ends will justify the means. And I think that that's a, a, a big part of our thesis in our book is that, you know, it, it sounds very conspiratorial that the end goal of of this indoctrination is the misery of an entire generation, but it is because you can't succeed in format fomenting a revolution when everyone's happy. You need everyone to be miserable. And so, you know, make everyone miserable and then enjoy the fruits of that misery. Uh, when we finally reach utopia, you just have to be super duper miserable before we finally reached our end goal. There you go. Some some solid self-flagellation before you're released into a garden of happiness. Uh, so in the intro to your book, I, I can't remember if it was in the preface, you you sort of you, you give a, a little passage of the typical kind of email that you receive. Oh, you know, I wasn't yeah. aware of this and so on, which is, of course, something that I've faced in terms of the emails that I received, you know, millions of time, but oftentimes it's, it's not quite, I wasn't aware. It's rather, I don't know what my voice can do. I mean, you know, you're as some fancy professor with a big platform and you go on Joe Rogan. Well, it makes sense for you to speak, but I'm just some little schmuck. Uh, how can I do it? And, and of course I always tell people, first of all, we can all do something within our relative spheres of influence. Uh, Joe Rogan, might have a bigger platform than you, that doesn't mean that you throw up your arms in, in defeat and diffuse the responsibility onto others. What are some specific, if any, actionable you know, call to arms that you can provide parents so that they don't either hide under the veil of ignorance, even if it's true, I, you know, I wasn't aware that this was being taught, or they know that it's true, that it, that's happening, but who am I? How can I affect the change? Is there a way that we can break through that, light that match so that people can all in unison act up? Yeah, so one of the things that I think is the most important and why we wrote this book um, was to just make parents aware that this is what's going on in every sort of facet of their lives. Um, one of my favorite recent stories that I was just told this past weekend from a fellow parent who doesn't work in media, doesn't work in conservative, he's actually very secret at his job because um, he works in the federal government and so he can't be known as a conservative. Um, and he was explaining that he led a very quiet revolution in his kid's first grade class against a, a video that was um, that was sort of introducing gender ideology way too early, way too inappropriate for first graders. And 
how he did it was he just emailed and said, I'd like to see everything that you're teaching in health class this year. Thank you. And with all of his free time, he has none. He sat down and he just looked through the materials. He got the books out of the library. He watched the videos linked on YouTube. And that was one of the videos that he watched. And he tried to keep, he didn't do it all in one sitting. He tried to keep like two weeks ahead or so. And he realized in two weeks, they're going to be showing my child this video. I am not comfortable with this. And so he didn't want to pose this problem on the entire class sort of email list. And so, you know, I, I pick up one day, he said, did you get, did you see the video that they're showing the kids in the two, in two weeks? And the majority of the parents said, I haven't, but I trust the school. I don't, I don't have time for that. And then he got another mom to watch it. And she was like, that is not okay. And he said, well, why don't you, why don't you tell some of the other class moms? And the two of them started getting people to watch it. And then five people watched it. And then 10 people watched it. And no one was comfortable with it once they finally watched it. And so then they started emailing the principal. And at first the principal said, we are the experts. We will not be changing the curriculum at the behest of parents. But when in a class of 20, 18 parents have emailed and said, I'm pulling my kid out, you kind of have to. And so this, this lesson wasn't just about this video. It was a lesson for the 20 parents in that class who are only in first grade. They got, they got a lot more time in this school. And that classroom of parents learned, I need to be paying closer attention. And when I brought these parents, when I brought these concerns up initially, the school pushed back and they thought that they knew better than I did as the parent. And that taught them a lot of lessons that they will carry with them for the next 11 years of their kids schooling. And so, you know, it's really as easy as that. Just pay attention and talk to your fellow parents and don't assume that everyone else is comfortable with it. Uh, there's this emperor's new clothes moment with with woke ideology. Everyone assumes that everyone else is okay with it and that you're the bigot. And it's not the case. And people are just afraid to speak up in a group. But I mean, the video was not appropriate for first graders. Right. You want to add anything, Carol? But I, I just to piggyback on that, uh, finding your allies is very important. Finding people of, of like-mindedness um, who can speak out together with one voice is important. Um, and that might mean that you have to leave the school that you're at. It might mean that you have to leave your community. It might mean like I did, you have to leave your state. Um, but you have to make these decisions for your kids because childhood is very short and the things that you're doing right now will impact them going forward. You, you know, the, I, I always like to say that the, the, the very non-resilient adults, they had to start somewhere and it, their parents really didn't, didn't do what they were supposed to do for them. Um, it's not going to be easy. That's a thread throughout the book. The book has a lot of fighting in it, how to fight, how to fight, which way, you know, where to fight, when to fight, um, because it, it is going to be a battle. These people have captured most of our institutions, most of our schools, um, and they are targeting your children. So unless you're okay with that, it's time to fight back. Well, you may or may not know this, uh, and I think when I sent you some of the, the questions that I might, uh, you know, pose you, I one of them was, about the schools of education and university that so that if I if I were to rank uh, all of the different departments on you know how woke they are how you know parasitized they are uh, undoubtedly the schools of education would probably come on top of that list if not number one 
And I don't think it would be conspiratorial to think that makes perfect sense because to go back to our earlier point, I need to get access to your children as early as possible yeah. in order for them to abide by my you know, utopian, eventual utopian worldview. And therefore, what better way to do that than to indoctrinate the ones who are going to have access to, to our children, which are elementary school teachers. Do, do you think that that's something that just happened, uh, you know, organically, you know, or by, for example, a self-selection bias, people who are super progressive decide to become elementary teachers? Or do you think there was kind of a willful, sinister playbook by which we said, let's indoctrinate the teachers so that eventually they can indoctrinate the kids? What's your sense? I think it was willful, but not quite how you're saying it. I don't think that there was like one, you know, evil ha 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 guy who was like, <laughs> we're going to indoctrinate the teachers. It, it's more conformist. It's more, this is what we believe. If you don't believe that, then maybe this is not the right profession for you. And so what ends up happening is that this leftism is pushed at these teachers' colleges. For example, um, math is racist is a concept that is in teachers' colleges. It, it is being taught to teachers that math can potentially be racist and that you have to look at uh, math as a, a white supremacy tool. This is not exaggeration. This is actually happening. Um, and I think that that's what limits uh, teachers from fighting back against this. I've met a lot of non-leftist teachers, even in Brooklyn, even in like Park Slope, Brooklyn, like deep, deep blue Brooklyn. I met lots of teachers who are not leftists, but they sort of feel that they have to keep their mouths shut and they have to fit in with the other teachers, especially with their union. Um, they feel like their jobs are at risk if they speak yeah. out, but they would send me emails or they would you know, tell me like, I like what you're doing, I, you know, keep fighting. Um, and they would... Some of them would do the opposite of um, like, you know, we hear all these stories about these leftist teachers sneaking in indoctrination. These teachers would specifically see the indoctrination in the lesson plans and, and leave it out. So it they are people trying, but the system is so rigged for this wokeness and there's so much societal pressure to conform that you know, unless we fix these schools, it, we're going to continue having this problem. Bethany and I always say, you know, if you think that this is a coastal problem, New York, San Francisco, whatever, you know, look at where the teachers' colleges are and where these teachers disperse to th throughout the country. They're in the red communities. They're in the red states. And don't believe for a second that they're not. Well, this idea, oh, it's only a coastal problem, reminds me of something that I faced early in my career when I first started fighting all the woke stuff before we had the, the term woke. I've been a professor now 29 years, and I saw this from year one where there was incredible craziness going on on the university campuses. And oftentimes the response that I would get from people is, well, yes, sure, we understand these are crazy ideas, but they are restricted to a few esoteric mm -hmm. departments on university campuses. And then my answer was, but those viruses eventually escape. It's what happens. Right? Yeah. I mean- Yes, yeah. it starts I off in sociology and feminist glaciology, but eventually we get out of that. Then, then. By, by the way, I just tweeted earlier today uh, uh, a, a call, a job call from the University of Calgary. You know, a, a respectable university in in Alberta, Canada. Uh, about they're looking for an instructor of chemistry but that is going to use indigenous way of knowing chemistry. And so I wrote and I wrote, I tweeted and I said, you know, yes, finally chemistry will move from being, you know, a fake white science <laughs> to being a true science 
informed by indigenous way of knowing, right? Now, to your point about math is racist, mm -hmm. not to sort of sit gleefully and say, I, I told you so, I mean, not you, but the world. Okay. In 2016, I released a one of my satirical clips where I announced that I was that I had founded a new field, which I called social justice mathematics. I come from a math background. And so I basically went through all of these different theorems and properties of numbers. And I argued how they were, you know, racist and said, you know, irrational numbers, which is a real property of numbers. You know, that was a bad thing because it stigmatized people who had mental health disorder. And I just went through a whole thing. I would meet professors of mathematics at conferences and they'd say, you we we sit there and watch that clip and laugh together, and it turns out that you were right. Well, th the reason why I turn out to be right with my prophetic satire is because all I'm doing is that I simply take the lunacy and I extrapolate it to its boundary condition. Well, what could be more insane than to argue that something as invariant as mathematics, that by definition cannot be influenced by your biases, mm -hmm. is itself a form of white supremacy, and therefore I target my satire there. So having said that, I, I'm not saying this to be all, you know, to, to toot my horn, but if you have that capacity to see that that satire going to endless forms of lunacy, does that make us pessimistic that we're never going to get out of the abyss of lunacy? Or can you give us any hope that we can wrestle back reason from this insanity? I, I think that wokeness came to college campuses first. So you saw the, you know, the beta testing of the wokeness. <laughs> Um, and, you know, at least it's only happening in math and not like in any subject that we actually use. Right. Um, but, um, once it came to college campuses, we were told, oh, this is only happening in college campuses. Like once these kids get into the real world, what ended up happening was they got into the real world. They changed all the, the corporations and institutions. Um, and now they're um, really leading the way with this ideology in so many different areas of our lives. The hopeful thing that I like to say is that their ideas are really unpopular and that's why they have to do it by force. That's why they need us to conform. If the ideas were well liked and everybody loved it, um, you know, when we talk about math being racist, everybody would be like, yeah, math is racist. Clearly. I mean, I think it's racist. I'm really bad at math. So I actually I think math is anti-Semitic. I, I don't you know, it's not for me. Um, but I, I think that the pendulum will swing back the other way, but beyond just waiting for that to happen, people need to realize that sanity is in the majority. Like th this woke virus is a very small part of the population. In the US, only 7% of people identify as very liberal. And that, you know, probably even smaller number would, would consider themselves progressive or woke. Um, and so when you argue with these people, you have to know that you have, you know, the 93% behind you. It's just, you have to be brave and you have to stand up to their ability to call you racist and sexist and all, all these different names and shut down your speech when they don't like it um, and make you conform to what they're saying and, and make you say things in the exact right way and make a spectacle of it, just like totalitarian societies did in the past. So people need to stand up and they need to be brave and they need to know that they are the majority. Beautiful. Yeah. I, I, go ahead. Go ahead, Bethany. 
Sorry, I, just to piggyback on Carol just for a second. The other way that they achieve this is in secrecy. And so mm-hmm. they know that their ideas are not popular. And that's why they're indoctrinating our children in secret. It's why Disney executives are having conversations about how to make, you know, how to make Disney more woke and more, you know, all of these things on their Zoom calls sort of in secret, but they're not smart enough to sort of limit the number of people who are watching because that was sort of an all staff conversation. Right. But um, but they know that they have to do this in secret because this is not a popular ideology. And so much of our book is just shining a light on that. And um, and folks need to pay attention. A lot of um, a lot of what they're doing is not secret enough. Uh, they're not very good at keeping secrets because they're not very smart. Um, and so you just kind of have to pay attention and shine a light on it also. Um, and people should, you know, touch base with other folks in their social circles who agree uh, that this is crazy and that this is a real threat. And, um, you know, bring it to the attention of other parents and bring it to the attention of local activists um, who are, you know, I, I think that a lot of the activists are moms because they might not necessarily be the breadwinners of the family. And so they don't have as much to lose if they get canceled. So, you know, throw some moms under the bus. Why not? That's why we're here. Right. Uh, Go ahead. Finish your point. No, no. I mean, that that's just, you know, moms are here to, to take the hits. So here we are. (laughs) So you said, uh, you know, for people to get together, which is a nice segue to my next question. Are there, or are there any upcoming or ones that recently started grassroots organizations that are sort of anti-woke parent chapters? So, for example, in academia, although some of these attempts have not been very successful, there have been sort of a, a, a coming together of like-minded professors who don't like all of these idiotic ideas. You know, the heterodox academy, I would argue that it's not nearly as effective as it could have been Uh but still, there is an attempt to to ban people so that we can find each other. Uh, are there such organizations for parents who are anti-woke? Or is or if not, wouldn't that be a great idea to do that? There are. I, I would say that the biggest problem is that it's hard to get people to care when they don't have their own kids or when their kids are no longer of the age where this is affecting them, or if their kids are too young to be affected. You know, I was thinking that the last time that I was on your show, we ended up talking about sex and it was like, you know, a popular clip. Um, And it's harder to get people to care about like, oh, but your children are being targeted. It's just not quite as, I don't want to use the word sexy when I'm talking about kids, but it's not quite as sexy a topic. Um, And so like you mentioned Asra Nomani earlier, her child, missed out on getting a national merit scholarship because the school in Virginia didn't want uh, too many white and Asian kids to get it. And so they didn't tell them that they qualified for the scholarship. Travesty. The problem is not that many people have kids who will qualify for that scholarship. So getting them to care, why should I care? But other, other people, it's, 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 it's a little bit of a step, but you know, the argument that we make is that it's not just about the children. The children are just sort of like the base that these people are laying. If you don't like doing, you know, the diversity and inclusion, um, you know, shows at your job, if you don't like the fact that the National Merit Scholarship 
winner um, losers will, you know, go on to like hold you back at your work as well. Um, you have to look at it as it affects all of our society. So there are groups. Um, it's just keeping people engaged even beyond when it doesn't no longer affect them directly is the is I think the the overarching problem with this movement. Got you. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, Parents defending education. If I'm just going to throw out some Fantastic. names, parents. Yeah. I'm on the board. Yeah. I just want to yeah. say it again. Parents defending education. Yep. Parents defending education, and also Moms for Liberty. So I'm just going to throw two names out there. Those are two. Awesome. So Moms for Liberty speaks to my earlier comment about the the evolutionary reasons why moms might be more likely to be the mama bears than papa bears. So that's exactly right. We we don't seem to have dads for liberty when it comes to parental care, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I it's think funny. So, dad remembers, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. So Jennifer Say, who famously got fired from her job at Levi's. Oh, because... I just, sorry to interrupt you. I just met her. Uh, remember, Carol, I told you that I would be in Palm Beach this yes, last weekend. Yes. You'd be in Colorado. Yes. That mm -hmm. uh, she was one of the speakers. She's so great. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So she, she recently said that um, she had been approached by a lot of dads who were like, thank you for fighting. I can't sacrifice my family's livelihood. And she's like, do you, do you think that I was volunteering for Levi's? <laughs> right. I, I too lost my livelihood. Um, but she, she, that was a, sort of an interesting anecdote that she said that the number of dads who came up to her and said, I didn't fight because I was afraid of sort of sacrificing my livelihood. I think there's a lot of evolutionary stuff at play. Yeah. And I think the dad provider thing, first of all, it's, it, is backed up by data dads make more money and moms work less to sort of take on more childcare duties. That's not because we live in an inherently sexist society. It's just biologically what moms want to do and what dads want to do. But I think that there is a biological sort of imperative on the part of men to say, uh, we need to guard our livelihood right. first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And moms say the top priority in my brain is our children. Right. Um, and so I think that's also why. You're going that to be James, of, you're going to be James Demord soon. You, you remember? Who I know. You are oh, I do. Google. Nazi I know. Stuff. I yeah. know. It's called no. evolution. It's called evolution. evolutionary <laughs> science. In this family, we believe in science. There you go. Uh, okay. Are there any? I, I mean, maybe we don't want to talk about future projects while you know you're promoting this wonderful yeah. book. Carol, are, are there, we ever uh, writing a book again? I'm never writing a book again. I is that know. true? <laughs> well, how long was it between your two books? Uh, so the latest yeah. two, because I, yeah. I have many, but you mean yeah. the parasitic latest, mind? The next one? The last one. You know, yeah. it's so funny because I was walking with my uh, wife earlier today to go get a coffee and she said, please take a break once the next, because I'm just like a constant busy beaver. Uh, so I think probably four months into parasitic mind being released, I had gotten the contract for the next book and started working on it. Uh yeah. So apparently not you're that. not going to be doing that. No. <laughs> why, why was it? Was it somehow? Um, or, I, you uh, know, I, I actually, I really love the end product and um, I'm really proud of this book. I think that we hit everything that we wanted to hit in it. I think we wrote the book that we wanted to write. Um, and, and we had some challenges along the way, which, you know, we'll, uh, we, we have, we have a piece coming out about it, how publishing companies were really skittish about um, our book. And, um, it was just, I, I just found, I, I'm a columnist. I really enjoy making my point in 700 to a thousand words. Right. And that's it. You it's know? a very and, different. Um, 
and really just and, and getting the, the acclaim right away. Like I write it on Thursday, it runs on Friday and then, on, you know, I just I, I, I really enjoy that process. Um, and the book was just it like I was like, did I say this already? And, and you know, the, the whole like, like, is this original idea and just all, all kinds of things that I think I, I never worry about in my column writing. I suddenly worried about in book writing. So it felt very childbirthy. So people do forget about child. Yeah, and we're in transition right now. Kids. <laughs> we're you in know, transition. It's, <laughs> it's funny that you said childbirth because uh, when my, so this is my first book right here. The Evolutionary mm-hmm. Basis of Consumption came out in 2007. This is an academic book. So like very technical book. Uh, when I finished it, I went through something akin to a postpartum depression. But I mean, I'm being, right. I mean, I'm being a bit hyperbolic. So I didn't literally have clinical depression, but I felt as though, you know, I had done this whole big thing. This massive baby had come out of me, and now what do I do with myself? There's, there's nothing I can do that's as right. big. A, so, so I did have. I, I didn't quite feel it with future books because at that mm-hmm. point. I had been popping out a lot of babies. <laughs> so you had more babies. I had more babies. But the first one was like, can I ever do something as meaningful as this? Because it, and plus it was because it was an academic book. It, it certainly wasn't expected to sell millions of copies. You know, the academic mm-hmm. books, if they sell 300 copies, they're considered successful. And so mine had had broken through the 1000 copies. So it wow. was an academic bestseller. But again, compared to a trade book, I could sell that in, <laughs> in, in an afternoon, right? In mm-hmm. the trade market. So it was, it was something unique. I did feel a bit of, of the sort of postpartum depression. How was the collaboration? Were they, are, are you still very good friends or less? So <laughs> yeah, no, that, okay. that part went great. Um, we divided up the chapters along really natural lines. Like there was no like, oh, I should write that or you should, it, it just really, really fit um and um we had been talking about doing a book together for a while so this was really um just somewhere that we knew we were going together wonderful uh i know that you have a a hard stop Uh, your publicist told me so so i'm going to end it please stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline remember again folks i want to i want to I know the title is Stolen Youth, but I wanted to also say the subtitle, Stolen Youth, How Radicals Are Erasing Innocence and Indoctrinating a Generation, will be out March 7th. Thank you for putting it up. Uh, Bethany, ladies, such a pleasure to chat with you. Please come back anytime that you'd like to. Thank you. Thank you.